You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. And again, it's great to see all of you here in the room. And those of you who are watching online or listening or watching this as a recording down the road, glad you're with us. So glad you're with us. So um, there are a number of you who have been coming to Grace for a lot of years. And one of those folks is Gary Hester. And many of you know Gary. And Gary's been coming here for about 30 years. This is Gary's last Sunday with us. He is moving to Arizona to be closer to family and friends. I just want to say we love you, Gary. We're going to miss you and just so glad that you've been part of our church family. And I wish I could do that for every one of you for, for whatever reason has to relocate or move or whatever. But uh, we do love you, Gary. So, so that being said, especially for those of you who came in the room this morning, a number of you went and sat in the same place you sat last week and the week before and the week before and the week before. And it might be, you know, habit. We might even say that it's a tradition. And if we were really going to mess with you here this morning, I would have maybe sat in your chair, your chair, you know, when you came in and you would have gone, hey, wait a minute, that's my chair. So all of us have, it seems like, these traditions that matter to us. And again, we're talking about things far more significant than where you sit in the room. But we do have traditions, right? And some of us are more bent towards traditions. Like, uh, that's me. Uh, Traditions are very, very important to me. And we have a number of traditions in our family. And at times, some of those have had to modify or change. But there's some traditions that, that are enduring and that last And so I want you to think with me as we prepare to dive into this passage together about how you approach traditions. What are the traditions that are true for you or true in your family? Now consider a long-standing tradition that maybe you've practiced most, if not all, your life. Maybe your family has practiced it. Maybe it's been practiced in your family for generations. And imagine changing that or someone changing that on you. Like, for instance, let's say this year, instead of celebrating Christmas on December 25th, we as a church said, you know what? We're changing Christmas this year. We're going to celebrate on March 12th because it's Jay's birthday, you know? And, you know, so we're going to move it there, and you'd all go reasonably so. What? What, what are you doing? But imagine changing a longstanding tradition and not really necessarily understanding why. We would all probably struggle with that. And so this morning we come to Matthew 26 and we come to what is commonly called and necessarily called the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, or communion. And what we have to understand and appreciate is what we're about to read and what Jesus did was to change 1,500 years of tradition. He's going to literally change the focus of the Passover, And what's really important for us to understand is kind of the background for this before we actually dive into this passage. So let's take a real quick back into history here. So about 1,500 years before these events happened that we're going to look at here in Matthew 26, the Passover happened. And again, the Passover is rooted in history. This this really did happen. And this was a time when God's people were really um, oppressed by the Egyptian people. 
And again, we don't have time to go into it, but if we were to go back to the book of beginnings and the book of Genesis, God creates humanity, he creates heaven and earth, the people populate and, and um, increase in number, and then we begin to see God's people begin to form and um, through the patriarchs, what have you, and then at the end of Genesis, because of a famine, all of God's people, and there's not many at this point, migrate to, emigrate to Egypt, and they stay there for 400 years, and they grow in number and size, and so at that point, the Egyptians are, are feeling threatened by them. They oppress them. And so God instituted the Passover. He had always promised he would free the people from captivity. And so he does just that. Through Moses, there is a series of ten judgments that begin to happen in the book of Exodus as it describes that to us. And each of these judgments is the judgment upon sin, upon brokenness, upon the Egyptians. And it culminates in the final judgment where God says that the firstborn in every household is going to die unless a sacrifice is made of a lamb and the blood of that lamb is taken and put on the door frames and then the angel of death would pass over, which is where this gets its name, and death would pass over that home. But if there wasn't blood on the door frame, then the firstborn would die in that home and death literally visited every home. In Egypt either the lamb died or the firstborn died and then God's people were freed so God commanded his people to observe the Passover it was a tradition it was a festival it was a season that they celebrated the same way at the same time every year and they had done this for over a thousand years and the Passover not only looked back on what God had done, it looked forward to what God would eventually do. Someday, a greater Moses would come. Someday, there would be a final exodus. Someday, the ultimate sacrificial lamb would give his life in order to completely free the people. And now, we're ready for Matthew chapter 26. Jesus has left the Mount of Olives just outside Jerusalem. He has finished what he's been talking about that we've been looking at in Matthew 24 and 25. And by the way, we'll finish out this series, the Matthew series, next weekend when Sean will come and we'll finish up the last part of Matthew 25. But now we jump to Matthew 26. He leaves the Mount of Olives. He comes into Jerusalem. He is anointed. There is a, uh, a plot that has been brewing that is now coming to culmination where Judas, one of his disciples, one of his inner circle, agrees to betray him. And now they prepare to celebrate the Passover together. So now we're ready to look at Matthew 26. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? And he replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. And when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. And Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. And then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus said, You have said so. 
And while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. And now he's changing 1,500 years of tradition with this. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in the Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So let's begin to quickly work our way through this story. So they, like every other observant Jew in that time, is going to observe the Passover. And they begin to make preparations. And he tells them to go to a certain man. And Matthew omits this detail for us, but in the Gospel of Mark, which also talks about this, it says that the certain man was a man carrying water. Now in that culture... Typically, women were the ones who would carry water, so to see a man carrying water would be unusual, and that would be a, a distinctive way to know who this guy was. So they go to this guy, and they go to where the Passover is going to be celebrated, probably in an upper room of his home. And then Jesus drops this bombshell. Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray you. And now it tells us they begin to go around the room and say, you surely... Surely you don't mean me, Lord. And until really studying this passage this last week, I've always kind of cruised on by this, and I think there's something very important here for us to understand. These are the 12 men who have been in Jesus' inner circle. They lived life with him. They've done life with him. They've seen the miracles. They've heard the teaching. They've seen the consistency of who he is and who he claims to be. They, more than anyone, have more than enough evidence. They've lived it for the last three years to know Jesus is the Son of God. He is the promised one. He's the Messiah. He's who they've been waiting for. So if all that is true, why in the world would they ask this question of Jesus? And it is a question. And it's not a confident question. It's, well, could it, could it be me? Am I going to be the one to, to betray you? And I, I just, I wonder, could they know what really, if we stop and take some time to think about it and to ponder our own hearts and our own bent apart from Jesus and right relationship with him, could it be that they realize that any one of them is capable of betraying Jesus. Because it's a reality for all of us. Apart from right relationship with God through knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we're all betrayers. You know, sin, brokenness, selfishness is often defined in the Bible as missing the mark or falling short or doing this or not doing that, but it's also described as betrayal. And we're all capable of betrayal of one another and of, of God himself. And betrayal is its own kind of pain. And a number of you have walked that path. You've been betrayed, betrayed by somebody in some way, shape, and form. And it is its own kind of pain. Imagine how Jesus felt knowing that Judas was going to betray him, his inner circle, one of the closest friends, or at least 
one of the disciples who had done life with him and who should have been loyal to him, and yet he's, he's going to betray him. And you know, one of the things as a pastor that I get to do is I get to step into situations where betrayal has occurred. You know, I've been a vocational pastor for 30 years now, and a number of times I have been with couples where one couple, or excuse me, one spouse has been confessing to the other for the first time that they have betrayed them, that they've had an affair, that they've been living a secret life, that they've been disloyal. And again, this is not to add to anyone's pain with this, but just the reality that betrayal, it's its own kind of pain. And we have to understand that as we look at this story, it's more than just a story, it's our story in that there's a little bit of Judas in all of us. All of us are capable of betraying. And we don't think about it this way many times, but when we shake our fist at God, when we decide to live apart from God, when we decide to not love, when he calls us to love other people, you fill in the blank. That is an act of betrayal of, of the Lord. And it's important for us to understand that God knew this would happen, that God is working all this together in his plan. Jesus says the Son of Man, which again is his favorite self-designation out of Daniel 7, which is describing his divinity, that he really is the, the Lord, the Son of God. The Son of Man will go just as it was written about him. Jesus is not a victim of circumstance here. We need to understand that. He knows what is about to happen. And he says, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. And again, that's really interesting to me. Not that that's happening, but that he says it that way because do you realize he's not singling anybody out even though he knows who is going to betray him? He knows Judas is going to betray him, but he's not singling him out. Because in the ancient Near East, when you had a meal like this, everyone would have dipped their bread into the bowl. That was part of how you ate. So this doesn't reveal anything. But there's another layer underneath this, and it's this. Also in the ancient Near East, if you ate with someone, if you dipped your bread in the bowl, proverbially with them, if you had a meal with them, then what you were saying by your very actions is you can trust me. We're in relationship. I'm your friend. I'm loyal to you. Or to put it another way, I would never betray you. So for Judas... To eat with Jesus and then to betray him would have been so vile, so despicable, so heinous. And yet that's exactly what's going to happen. And Jesus knows it's going to happen, and yet he doesn't single Judas out. And they go around the room and everyone speaks up now except Judas, and now Judas does. And I just, I wonder what the tone was with how he said this. And we don't know. But this is what we do know. It was very disingenuous. He knew he was going to betray Jesus. And evidently, he didn't think that Jesus knew. So surely you don't mean me, Rabbi, Rabbi. And Jesus says, you have said so. Which, again, is another really interesting way for him to respond. Instead of saying, yeah, it's you, you vile betrayer. How could you do that to me? He says, well, you said it. That's basically what he's saying here. You said it. He's still not singling Judas out. And it's remarkable because I believe 
and I've, I've advocated for this before, and I absolutely believe this, whenever you look through Scripture and you see the judgment of God, you will always see preceding it the grace of God. And I think right up to the very end, Jesus is giving Judas a way out. He's giving him the opportunity to not follow through with what he's about to do. And I think once again, we see the persistence and the depth of the grace of God. And just so that we're on the same page, grace is God's unmerited, unearned love given to us for the sake of right relationship with him and right relationship with others. And it's also the empowerment, the enablement to live out a life of faithfulness to him. That's what his grace is. So do betrayers deserve grace? Does Judas deserve God's grace right up to the very end? Do I? Do you? No. That's why it's grace. It's undeserved. And this is how God loves. He gives us his grace, but understand when he gives us his grace, when he offers us opportunities to turn away from brokenness, to turn away from selfishness, to turn away from sin, to turn away from betrayal itself, that's meant to be an escape from it, not a license to do it. And so often in our culture, you will hear people say, oh, you know, God will forgive me, or oh, you know, God will be okay with this, or, or we treat God like obeying him is a buffet line where we pick and choose what we want to do and what we don't want to do, and that's not how it works. His grace is given to us not to entitle us to sin, not to give us a license to sin, but to rescue us from it. And right up to the very end, he's offering Judas a way out, and Judas doesn't take it. He leaves to go betray Jesus. And then this is where Jesus changes the Passover. And this is, this is unbelievable. He goes off the map. He goes off script. This is not how the Passover is, is celebrated. And I've deliberately said, Jesus changes the Passover here. Jesus changes 1,500 years of tradition. Actually, he doesn't. He doesn't change it. He focuses it because he fulfills it. And bread all throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New, is always symbolic of the presence of God. And Jesus is literally saying, this is me. Take and eat this. This is my body. And then he goes on to say, this cup is the blood of the covenant. And in some translations, it says the new covenant. Either one works, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And again, at this point, he's also changing the Passover celebration because there were four cups that were drank through the Passover celebration that actually go back to Exodus chapter 6 and reminded the people of what God had done for them. He sanctified them. He delivered them. He redeemed them. The promise of his kingdom. And many scholars, most scholars believe that it's this third cup, the cup of redemption that Jesus is saying this is representative of the new covenant. This is, this is my blood. You see, the Gospels, the Lord's Supper, teaches us the purpose of his death. 
All the Gospels build to that. Do you realize as we've gone through Matthew, over a third of Matthew has been focused on his death? A third of the Gospel of Mark, a quarter of the Gospel of Luke, almost half of the Gospel of John is about the death of Jesus, which, again, to many folks who aren't familiar with God's Word or familiar with what Christianity teaches, that just that feels really weird. All this focus, all this emphasis on, on death, what's, what's the deal of that? Why all this about Jesus' death? And it's because what his death means for us, right? If Jesus died just to die, that, that really doesn't make a lot of sense to us. By way of example, if I said to you, I'm going to show my love to you, I'm going to show my devotion to you, and I step out in front of a car and get hit and killed by it, we would all look at that and go, what did you do that for? That was silly. That was senseless. That was tragic. But it's not the fact that Jesus dies. It's the fact that he dies on our behalf. If you and I are crossing the road and here comes a car and I push you out of the way to save your life in order to sacrifice mine for yours, that's a whole different story. And it is a story that compels us and inspires us and is told over and over and over again in the media, in the arts. It's compelling to us. And you know I can't talk about this without emphasizing a Marvel movie of some kind, right? In the last Avengers movie, movie, Endgame, this is the look on Iron Man's face, Tony Stark. And some of you are going, what is all this about? Watch the movie. For those of you who have a frame of reference, you know what I'm talking about here. He's looking at Doctor Strange. I know. Just let that go by. He's looking at Doctor Strange, and there is, there's no words that pass between them. There's just this look. And this look on this guy's face is his realization that he is going to have to die on behalf of everyone else in order to save the world. Does that sound like a story we're talking about this morning? It's everywhere. It's in movies. It's in the arts. It's everywhere. Because the idea of someone sacrificing themselves on behalf of another is compelling to us, and it should be, because it's our story. This is our story. It isn't just a story. This is the story of what Jesus has done for us. And he calls attention to that here when he talks about this is my blood of the covenant. And that's something else that, you know, as I talk with people who aren't Jesus followers, through, especially through the years, I've heard this a lot of, what's, okay, what's all the weird emphasis, not just on death, on Jesus' death in particular, but on blood? You guys sing about blood, and you talk about blood, and you celebrate this, this tradition that we're all about to do here in just a little bit that, that remembers the blood of, of Jesus, and it's all just it's all kind of weird, and in and of itself, it is kind of weird, unless you truly understand what it means. So why all this emphasis on blood? Why Jesus talking about his blood? Why do we remember his blood when we take communion? And in my own reading, you know, and I don't know why anyone would read Leviticus for fun, but in my fun reading, you know, in reading through parts of the Old Testament here recently, I came across these verses that reminded me of why we talk about this, why we actually celebrate this. 
For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Deuteronomy says, be sure that you do not eat the blood because the blood is life. Blood is representative of life. And what Jesus is saying here is literally, I'm going to give my life for yours. And the 1,500 years that God's people celebrated Passover before this happened was always looking forward to when the sacrificial lamb would give his life in order to save everyone else's. All the sacrifices of the Old Testament pointed to this. So why do we remember God's blood? Why do we remember the death of Jesus? Why do we celebrate this whenever we gather together for communion? Not only because it's our story, but because he has sacrificed himself for us to rescue us from sin and brokenness and ultimately death. Because the reality of sin is the cost of sin is death. And someone has to die. And God has said, rather than it being you, it's going to be me. Jesus is literally saying here, my blood, my life on behalf of yours, my life instead of you, my life in the stead of you. And so communion reminds us of the reality that we take this God into our lives. Christianity, what the Bible teaches, it is the only religion, the only worldview that I understand that says you not only don't go looking for God, God comes looking for you, and that you don't try to get to God, God comes to you. In fact, he wants to get so close to you, he wants to literally come into your life. And we emphasize and celebrate this reality and this truth every time we take communion. And how do you get him into your life? You receive him into your life. You just ask him to literally come into your life, and he will. Not because you've earned that, not because you deserve that, but because of his grace, because of his love for us. Communion represents this intimacy that we can all have with the God of the universe. It's astounding. And it's something we deliberately remember together, corporately, whenever we take communion. But finally, communion, it proclaims the reality of the hope that we have. For centuries, God's people had waited and hoped for the chosen one, for the promised one to come. And the night that this happened in Matthew 26, some 2,000 years ago, the lamb wasn't just on the table. The Passover lamb was sitting at the table. The ultimate lamb, the ultimate one who would sacrifice his life for, for us. And so there's so much hope and reality in the Lord's Supper. My friends, no matter how bad things are for you, things are going to get better. If not in this life, in the life to come. And no matter how good things are for you now, things are going to get better. If not in this life, in the life to come. Last week we talked about what it looked like, at least to some degree, to purposefully wait for Jesus to come back a second time. This is part of how we purposefully wait. When we take communion, we are declaring he's coming back. Because what did he say in this very passage? Someday, we'll do this 
literally in his presence at the wedding supper of the Lamb, as Revelation 19 describes. This, is, this proclaims our hope every time we do it. And we're called to live out that hope and that grace that's been given to us. I told you that sometimes as a pastor, I've been with people when one has been expressing to another that they have betrayed them. But I've also been privileged as a pastor to see in those circumstances one person look at another who has been betrayed and for the one who is betrayed to be able to say, despite their pain, despite their hurt and those realities, I forgive you. How in the world does someone do that? Betrayers don't deserve grace. Exactly. No one deserves God's grace. And yet he loves us. And he offers us hope. So who are you this morning? Are you a betrayer? Or are you a believer? We all start out as betrayers. And even as believers, we still struggle at times with betraying him, betraying others. But if you know Jesus Christ, if you've received him into your life as your Lord and Savior, your core identity is not that you are a betrayer. Your real identity is that you are a believer. And that's what we celebrate here this morning. I'm going to invite our worship team to come forward, and I'm going to invite our communion servers to come forward, and we're going to, to celebrate communion together. And the reason we have you come forward isn't because we can't figure out a better way to get the elements to you. We want you to put motion to decision. That communion is an invitation to follow the Lord Jesus Christ once again. And some of you need to come forward to receive this for the very first time as a believer. Because you are saying this morning, I do want to follow you, Jesus. I receive you into my life. Those of us who are believers, once again, we're saying, I want to follow you. I want to do business with my brokenness. I don't want to live as a betrayer. I want to be a believer. And my true identity is that of a believer. And so as our team comes forward here to, to serve us, they're going to hit their hands with sanitizer, and then we're going to give you the elements, and then you can take those back to your chairs. And we ask that you hold on to those, and we'll take communion together. For those of you who are online, this is a great time for you to get your elements together, and then we will celebrate communion together when everyone here in the room has been served. So come forward, declare that you believe, and let's live out the hope that we have in him together. Jesus said, and we'll say in these verses we're just about to read once again, that this, this is his body. This also represents the presence of God. Then when you choose to receive this God into your life, he never leaves you. He's always present. He's always with us. And Jesus, Jesus said, while they were eating, and when they had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. So let's, let's remember him together.
And then he took the cup, the cup of redemption. that so vividly illustrates that he gave his life for ours. His death instead of ours, so that we might have life through him and through his sacrifice. And so he said, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's remember our forgiveness together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that you are the God who sees us in our brokenness, our selfishness, who knows our capacity to betray you and others, and yet you love us and you rescue us from that by giving us a new identity, a new foundation to build our lives on. You call us out of darkness into light. You empower us to live in right relationship with you and with one another, and that's where blessing is found. So Lord, we want to be believers in these realities. We pray that you will help us to believe you, to take you at your word, to trust and obey you, and to follow you wherever you lead us. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. And he is so good, is he not? Because of his body, because of his blood, because of his sacrifice, his life for ours, and because of his burial and his resurrection, he gives us hope now, and he gives us life now, and he gives us hope and life for the future. Because you see, at one time, my friends, we too were foolish and disobedient and deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we've done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. We don't have to live like betrayers. We can be believers because of what Jesus Christ has done for each one of us. And if there was ever a time and a season where our broken culture needs to hear this message, it's now. And they need to hear it not through just what we say, but by what we do and by how we live our lives. So as we prepare to go from here, as we prepare to go into the rest of our weeks, live as a believer. Go and live for him. Lord Jesus, thank you for the empowerment of your spirit. Thank you that you are always with us. Thank you for what you've done for us. And we do ask that as we go now into the rest of our day, the rest of our week, we would live for you as believers in the one true God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said... Amen. So do go and live for him. Thank you for joining us for sermon audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.